During these weeks between Easter Sunday and Pentecost, we're called to reflect on the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our individual lives, for the lives of those around us, and for the entire world. What difference does it make, as our former Secretary of State once quipped? In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul addresses this question, but particularly how the resurrection of Christ changed his own life, and therefore why he believed it should also change ours. Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, Kenneth, it's good to have you join us on the program today. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here. Always a pleasure. And I can think of hardly anything I'd rather do than than to, to um, hmm. meditate on, on the Word of God and, uh, and, and, and listen to what he has to say for us. And thank you all for joining us. Just a reminder, if you'd like, you can go to the website, deepinscripture.com uh, to find out more about the program. You can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And also be sure to subscribe to the CH Network Facebook or at Twitter, at CH Network. And we've been asking for, for emails. We'd love to have your thoughts and questions, uh, particularly about the scriptures we're looking at. But we, uh, before we get to today's scripture, which is going to be 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 11, uh, we're going to look at Paul's own conversion as his whole life was radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the resurrected Jesus Christ. And that's a story in itself. Before we get there, though, we did receive an email uh, from a listener whose first name was uh, Abel. And he writes, uh, and he was writing this to you, Ken, so you're the one that's got to answer the hard questions. He says, how do I answer a question from a well-meaning Baptist brother about the Catholic Church's authority to proclaim a person a saint? This is in light of the canonization of our two beloved men, Pope St. John XXIII and Pope St. John Paul II. And the above question also leads to another, he writes, why are there no proclaimed saints in the Old Testament like Moses, Elijah, who was seen by St. Peter with Lord Jesus at the Transfiguration, or even King David? whom God favored, and he writes, of course, in Lord Jesus Christ. Ken, you know, I, it's a good question because I'm trying to imagine how I re- used to look at the canonization process back when I was a Presbyterian. And I don't remember, but, um, of course, as Presbyterians, you and I, our church didn't declare anyone saints, although, Ken, I don't know if you were guilty of this, but... I'm almost positive that every funeral I declared the person a saint. <laughs> you must have had a lot of power Well, uh, <laughs> as I, a Presbyterian pastor. I generally was telling everyone that they're in heaven. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I, yeah they're yeah. good people. I know they love Jesus Christ. And I know, you know, by God's grace, this elect person uh, is in the presence of Jesus as we speak. Of course, I was saying that more out of comfort, not as as a result of any... Uh, perspicuous knowledge, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, but what about this issue of sainthood, especially if you're standing outside the church and you just watched that entire 
ceremony in Rome, how do, should they understand what the church is doing? Well, it's a, it's an excellent question because um, I think people outside the Catholic Church do often misunderstand even what sainthood is. And um, I remember very well uh, a well-meaning Reformed man or Presbyterian man said to me one time, well, I thought a saint was someone who never sinned. And, uh, of course, at the time I didn't have much to say, but then I— um, I, I realize now, of course, that's not what the Catholic Church teaches at all. I mean, look at St. Augustine, right, in his confessions. Right. He talks about all of his sins, as, as do all the other great saints. A saint is simply a person who has lived a life of heroic virtue, of, of, of hero, heroic sanctity. And so a person, but, but most of all, a saint is just a person who's in heaven, who's with God. He is, because the word saint sanctus, translating the Greek hagios, means a holy one. So in a sense, the angels are also saints too, because they're with God in heaven, they're holy. We talk them, call them by St. Michael or St. Gabriel. Um, but a person, a human being who's in with God in heaven, that person is a saint. It's important to realize that there are millions and millions of more saints in heaven than there are those we've declared saints, right? Yep. Because... The church only has so much time to investigate the lives of some, uh, and there are millions more that aren't. But, of course, on on November the 1st, All Saints Day, we celebrate all of those who are the undeclared, the unnamed saints. Could be, some of them could be very well be our relatives. Um, and, you know, in Scripture, with, the, I was going to say that the word saint is used, like in the beginning of Ephesians, when, when Paul writes to all the saints— and those mm-hmm. who are faithful in Christ Jesus, um, right? You know what is, and so we get that confusion with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters who look to Scripture. You know what is the word "saint" there meaning, and and we Catholics aren't interpreting that text to mean what we now mean the word to. capital as capital S saints. Yeah. And in, in many ways, to a certain extent, though, what you said is true. A saint is a sinless person. Not that they were never sin, that they were ever sinless, but as a result of grace, as they enter into the presence of God, they are now perfect. Well, that's right, because God is a God of truth, and he can't declare something to be what it is not. Otherwise, he'd be untrue to himself. And so he can't declare a person sinless or perfect unless that person is sinless and perfect. And that's why we believe in purgatory, because we believe that it's the final purgation or cleansing to enter into heaven. Now, the the text, the, the word hagios that's used in the Greek New Testament that you refer to, we're all saints in the making. God's made us holy by virtue of our baptism. But that process of becoming holy isn't complete until we reach the beatific vision. So when the church declares someone officially a saint, it's placing that person before our eyes as Catholic Christians as a person to emulate, as a person example to follow. And, uh, you know, today, it's not well known in the calendar, but today is uh, one of the uh, Salesian saints, uh, Dominic Savio. And a 15-year-old boy who died early in life but showed heroic sanctity or or virtue uh, in his earthly life, even at 15 years of age. Well, he's an example, especially for young people, to follow. But it also means that we follow their teaching. 
And so in the case particularly of, of John Paul II, who wrote so many things, much more than many, most other popes, we have, we have his teaching to follow. But, but most of all, then, is the, that person now we're sure is an intercessor for us. Yep. He's our friend in heaven. And he intercedes for us before the throne of God through the merits of Jesus Christ. Now, when, when, you're, when the person asks about what authority the church has to do this, well, it goes right back to what our Lord said to uh, Peter in Matthew chapter 16. When after Peter proclaimed Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to Peter, You are Simon, your blessed Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it's not as if everybody has this authority, but the official pastors, the leaders, the bishops of the church, they have the authority given to them by Christ through apostolic succession to make these declarations. Now, there's debate even among Catholic theologians about, is this an infallible declaration? I tend to think it's not. I think the church is simply saying that, no, to the best of our knowledge, the, the best that we can determine about this person's life, this person is in heaven. And then, of course, there's the miracle. But you said something about that earlier, didn't you? Yeah, the, the, miracles, the miracles. Yeah, the miracles were something that, uh, in my own journey to the church, that, that uh, impressed me in the understanding of why the church requires, as, requires miracles in the process of, of canonization for someone. And, uh, you know, you and I both come from a Presbyterian Calvinist background that, Though we, in our evangelicalism, would have defended miracles in Scripture, we may not have been quite as open to the reality of miracles happening ever since the canon closed. Mm -hmm. And that's always been a debate amongst Protestants. And um, in fact, often that's the ridicule of Protestants against Catholic is our emphasis on miracles. Well, the, the point is very clear. And again, it's like anything. People will say, why do you worship Mary? We don't worship Mary. Well, then why do you pray to her? Well, let's, let's back up here. Because you'll never understand praying or adoring Mary until you back up and understand what we mean by communion of saints. That's and that right. the church is huge. And the church is alive. And death does not end life. It's merely an, an, a stepping stone into the longer aspect of all of our lives. And we can ask for intercession from those who are beyond the grave because they're in the presence of God. And so what's the proof? You know, if we ask someone to intercede for us, well, that's what the miracles are all about, is that the miracles are a way for the church to say that prayers to someone have indeed changed someone's life. And that's why when they examine a miracle, like they did for the miracles for John Paul II, is they have non-Catholics in the committee uh, examining to make sure that it isn't just you know made up or some other explanation. And in the end, they get down and they say, no, this was indeed a miracle as a result 
of the intercession. And, and Ken, that's exactly what's happened to, to John Henry Cardinal Newman. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, there was a, a miracle that was declared uh, to, therefore, the best that we can know, that our, that the prayer of intercession to John Henry Cardinal Newman changed someone's life. And that mm-hmm. says that that person is therefore in the presence of God. Yeah, yeah. And then the tremendous comfort of this is that all Bible-believing Christians believe in the obligation and the privilege of a Christian praying for one another. And since death does not separate us from the body of Christ that is in heaven, the church triumphant, then we believe that's a perfect um, uh, legitimate uh, legitimate inference from Scripture to say, don't we have brothers and sisters who are in heaven? John Paul II, John the Twenty Third, all the other great saints, they're our older brothers and sisters, and they've and they pray for us and they're concerned for us. You know, it might be worth reminding us of that beautiful statement of Saint Therese of Lisieux, which she said <clears throat> she died at twenty four years of age. But she said, I will spend my eternity doing good on earth, which really should be the goal of all of us, that when we die, when we go into that presence of God, we will pray fervently for those on earth who need our prayers while they're still on the journey to sainthood. And you know, yeah, the question may come up, well, can I ask a non-saint to pray for me? Can 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 I ask my dad, who's passed on, to intercede for me. And, uh, I mean, he's not been declared a saint, so what am, what am I doing? Well, the fact that miracles were were declared real as a result of somebody asking for the intercession of someone who had not yet been declared a saint is proof positive that we are encouraged <laughs> to, yes, right. to ask those who we are quite certain died in the faith of Jesus Christ, as the church yes. said, died in grace and in friendship with Jesus, to ask them, please put a good word in for me, intercede for <laughs> me, help me out here. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I believe that traditionally people end up going and... You know, in that movie Rocky, the last one, where he takes a chair and sits by the grave of his departed beloved wife, you know, he's it's not superstition. He's sitting there asking her, you know, I miss you, but please pray for me. Well, that's mm-hmm. what we're called to do with our brothers and sisters that have gone before us. Absolutely. That's wonderful, yeah. Mm. He did ask the question about the Old Testament folk and... Uh, and I, uh, you know, that's a little more complicated question, but why don't you address that one, Ken? He was asking, well, what about David and, and Elijah and Moses? You know, they had gathered with Jesus at the Transfiguration. Why haven't they been declared saints by the church? Well, they, they have. Uh, they, they, it's just that we don't, we don't have a custom of calling them saints. But if they're in heaven, they're saints. And by the way, they're in heaven. If they're in heaven, they're saints, whether we say they're saints or not. That's right. <laughs> so it's important to remember that objective truth. But the reason is because the Old Testament saints were before the coming of Christ. And so we didn't refer to them as saints. We only re- usually re- reserve the word for those that have died in the faith of the Christian gospel, in the, in the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, those Old Testament holy people are also in heaven and in the faith of Jesus Christ. And you could call them in that if you wanted to. You call them, I've seen it in Catholic books, you know, St. David, St. Elijah, and so forth, in various litanies of saints. So it's not impossible. It's just not a custom that we follow. All right, Ken. Very good. Well, again, audience, uh, we would love for you to 
send us any email questions, uh, especially dealing with any of the scriptures we're looking at. And uh, for those of you just tuned in, you're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Hull. Today we're going to continue a study of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We began last week, uh, and really last week we looked at the witnesses of, of uh, the early apostles and others to whom our Lord appeared after his resurrection. And as he ends that section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul then includes himself in that list. And he expands a little bit on, on his own experience of that. Uh, and Ken, uh, let me read those, but maybe before we get into in detail, talk about, uh, in general, the, the, the uniqueness of these passages about the resurrection for Paul and for us. Uh, Paul writes, mm-hmm. last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Yeah, this is a fantastic uh, passage in which Paul is reflecting on the the power of the resurrection in his own life. Now, he's talking about the witnesses in the preceding verses. He talks about Cephas, that is Peter. He talks about James and the 500 people that Jesus appeared to. And then he says, and last... Last of all, there's me. I'm the least of the apostles. And why would he call himself the least of the apostles? Because, as he goes on to say, I was one like born out of time. That is, I was, in fact, the word that's used here, ektroma, the Greek word, uh, could be translated either um, a miscarriage or an abortion. If the miscarriage and non-intentional oh. abortion being intentional, and so what he's saying is, I'm I'm like one that I, I'm a I'm a fish out of water. I don't belong among the apostles, but the fact is, Paul is reflecting upon his his the reality that he saw Jesus too, when Jesus revealed Himself to him on the road to Damascus. Remember when the story in Acts chapter nine, when Paul is going to Damascus. And he's going there as a zealous rabbinic student or maybe rabbi, and he's going to in he's going to imprison these Christians because they are turning Jews away from what he considered to be the truth. And then we come to that dramatic section in chapter nine of Acts where he says, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul, he says it right here in this text, of course, in 1 Corinthians, I persecuted the church. In other words, he couldn't have imagined any worse crime than persecuting the people of God. Now that reflects that Jewish mentality that we find in the Old Testament, where God said to Abraham, those that bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. To be with the people of God to identify ourselves with 
the people of God of Israel or the church in the new covenant. This is one of the greatest privileges that we have as Christians. You know, this testimony by Paul here is, uh, as the church teaches, the scriptures here have layers of meaning. There is the literal mm-hmm. and there's the spiritual. And often the spiritual is what is it saying to us? Uh, what was the intent of the Holy Spirit to communicate to us? The literal is we hear St. Paul's testimony of how his life was changed. The spiritual is, in what way is Paul's testimony a model for us to look at our own life? And, you know, there's a, a, a world-renowned theologian that every one of us has heard, every one of us, who didn't quite get the fullness of this passage. Because the one quote that, one of the main quotes that we all have heard him say, and he's renowned for this statement, is he says, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. <laughs> do you know who that was? I, see. I do not know. Forgive me. That was, his name was Popeye the Sailor. <laughs> oh, that theologian. That theologian. <laughs> and, you know, I am what I am, and that's all what I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Well, you know, it, that's as good as it goes. But what Paul is saying is not, he doesn't just say, I am what I am. What he's saying is, by grace, I'm more. Well, that's right. And he goes on to say, and, and this is the beautiful, I mean, this is such a beautiful understanding of salvation. When he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, I have become something, but it's not of my own effort. As the church so clearly teaches, we are not saved by our own efforts by pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps as the Pelagians taught and as some, unfortunately, uh, some non-Catholic Christians think that we teach, but we don't teach that. We teach that we are only what we are by God's grace. But then the flip side of that is, but his, and his grace did not, toward me, did not prove to be in vain. In other words, we have to improve or capitalize upon that grace in the sense that living out that grace and working for the kingdom of God and doing it for the glory of God. So there's both God's grace that brings us into the state of salvation, but then we have to work with God to, um, to increase that grace. All right, Ken, now, first of all, then, I want to push you here. Um, let's begin with Paul's pre-conversion vocation as a persecutor of the church. Now, the reason I want you to examine that is there are a lot of people who believe that what they are doing is of God. Oh, yes. Who believe in their heart that they're doing what God called them to do, even though it might be against ethical, moral standards. I mean, you know, but they believe this is what God called them to do, so I'm going to do it. I mean, talk about that in the life of Paul and also how it connects with our lives in the world around us. Well, I I think uh, that's one of the excellent questions because I was listening to a a presentation the other day online uh, by a very prominent um, Protestant minister out in California. And I had known about this man for years, long before I ever 
consider becoming Catholic. And he was repeating the same old misunderstandings and distortions of what Catholics teach. And I thought to myself, you know, you're a mature man. You should take the time (laughs) to really learn. But he thinks he's doing the will of God by pointing out all the errors of Catholicism. It just shows the human feebleness. We can all be easily deceived. And I know myself at times thinking subjectively that I was doing the right thing, but objectively I was not. You know, now you I, think of that. I was just going to say right along with that, Ken, I remember once going back to visit my seminary where I had attended, uh, after, and I visited after being a, a Catholic and uh, happened to be there on the day that they were newly installing their brand new president of the seminary who... I won't mention his name, but is a, a well-known uh, non-Catholic evangelical scholar, Old Testament scholar, and he was and he was giving his acceptance sermon in the chapel, and I was there. And in the midst of that, he was he was uh, praising the uh, commitments of evangelicalism and their commitment to sola scriptura and their commitment to justification by faith alone, alone, not like those. Catholics that still believe in salvation by works. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to stand up and scream. I mean, this guy is a, a renowned, world-renowned, Old Testament scholar, theologian. There's no excuse. He should do his homework that that ain't what Catholics have ever believed, have ever yeah. taught. Uh, in fact, the reason we don't believe in salvation by the faith is because of the teachings of the church. But as you said, there are people that become so convicted that they are doing the will of God that they really won't listen to voices that might challenge their misunderstanding. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. I think the, the bottom line is to remind ourselves that the intensity of our feelings that we're doing something right doesn't make it right. And so that that's not the criteria of truth. And you see this in the passage that we're studying today, but also in a parallel passage in 1 Timothy. Um, you, you see this coming up again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says um, he's talking about Christ, or talking about his former life, and he calls himself a blasphemer and a persecutor. Why don't you just hold it there? I'll I'll press the button pause for you, Ken. You just kind of stand (laughs) there motionless, and we'll come back after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm your host, Marcus Grodine, with Dr. Kenneth. I'll be with you in a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you.
next time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes revert to Catholicism, Leslie Blackwell, to the show. Find out how the Holy Spirit led her home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 11, but really focusing on on, uh, the conversion of St. Paul as a result of encountering the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he's not giving that specific account, which you could find in Acts chapter 9. Um, uh, but what we're looking at is the effect of it, and part of it was the change of his character, and one of which is, Ken, that he admits, as, as you read, that in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 59, he, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. We were also talking about, I mean, beforehand, he thought he was doing the will of God in persecuting. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you be certain? But Ken, he even admits in the Galatian letter that uh, he himself recognized the need for the authoritative affirmation of the church to confirm even what he knew for certain was an, uh, an appearance of Jesus in his life still. There's evidence that St. Paul accepted the important virtue of humility before the leadership of the church. Well, throughout the New Testament, when Paul talks about himself, you you hear that humility coming out. And the passage that you had alluded to there in Galatians chapter 2, uh, this is about verses um, oh, 7 to 10, where he talks about going up to the leaders, to, to Cephas, that is to Peter, to James, and to John. And they were, he calls them the acknowledged pillars of the church. And they extended the right hand of fellowship to him, which was a way of saying, we approve of your ministry to the uncircumcised. We will go to the circumcised, that is the Jews. You go to the Gentiles. But the point was, there's a couple of points there. One, there was there were these apostles, and Paul felt obligated to be in union with them. And because there was the idea of this is not my church. This is not the Pauline church. This is not the Petrine church. This is just the one church of Jesus Christ. And so, um, so Paul, um, in humility goes to these great apostles for their right hand of fellowship or their, their approval. You know, in another way, in the passage I alluded to earlier in first Timothy, when he calls himself a blasphemer, he calls himself a, a persecutor and an an insulting guy is one way to translate the last word. It says, I insulted Christ. I informally insulted him. But the the Greek word really is a noun. And he means I was an insulter. I was a, 
I was like a barbarian. Hey, you know, I Ken, was, I was going to tell, for the background for our audience, you're referring to that First Timothy 1, 12 through 16. Um, this is such an important passage, Ken, for you to expand on because this, whereas the First Corinthians letter, it's Paul writing as a bishop to a church of people. All right. Mm-hmm. First Timothy, it's Paul writing a personal letter to his assistant. And, yes. you know, he doesn't necessarily expect that anyone is ever going to re- read this. He's writing to Timothy. He doesn't tell him to share this letter with anyone. He just writes to Timothy. So we, we really see in this passage uh, an opening of Paul's heart to his, tr- his young bishop in training. And when he opened his heart to this young bishop in training, Timothy, what does he say? It reminds Timothy and himself, look, this is the kind of man I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a, I was a barbarian. But, he says, the grace of God overflowed super abundantly, flowed into my life. And when that took place, then I realized, yes, I am a chief of sinners. He goes on in verse, in First Timothy one fifteen. he says, this saying is for the sure and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the foremost of sinners. Mm. So we can never forget that where we have come from and in order to appreciate where we are now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But I'm not going to rest in what I am, like Popeye the Sailor Man. (laughs) I'm going to improve upon that. I'm going to work. I'm going to labor for the sake of the kingdom, so that that grace of God might increase within me. Yeah, that verse 16 passage in 1 Timothy 1, I said, I, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the, as the foremost, in other words, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Um, I mean, Paul, to this day, you know, as our, our emailer had talked about John the 23rd and Pope John Paul II being canonized as saints, one of the reasons that those that worked with them, others, bishops and priests, cardinals who worked and walked beside both of those men, completely affirmed their uh, the discernment process for their sainthood is because they saw these same qualities in them. And I mean, Ken, isn't it true? What is the main statement that we hear from the popes, but they are the servant of servants? Right. Yeah, that's the, that's the, we first hear that from Gregory the Great at the very end of the 6th century. He called himself the Servus Servorum Dei, the servant of the servants of God, which became also a very favorite phrase of many popes, but most recently of John Paul II. So that, that same humility that characterized Paul's life has characterized the leaders of the church. Unfortunately, not all of them, but most of them have lived that life of, of humility. Um, so like Paul, they believed and we believe that we have to, um, as it were, capitalize on the grace of God that's given to us. And again, it's it was di- something difficult, I suppose, as, as for you, as for me, that um, to realize that salvation was this ongoing process in which we more and more received the grace of God uh, into our lives. And here's Paul in First Timothy at the end of his life 
talking still about how much he owed to the grace of God. It it would seem to me that in this model of St. Paul, as he is, um, of course, willing to lift himself up as a model, not because he sees himself as perfect, but because he recognizes the responsibility that every Christian has for other Christians and other non-believers is that it's one thing to proclaim that we believe in Christ and that he's appeared to us or that he's opened our heart, but our lives must be a model of what that means. And we see that in Paul. But there's another thing, Ken, in, uh, in this whole understanding of St. Paul, which in my mind uh, really challenges the health and wealth gospels that are sadly running rampant in, mm-hmm. in, a, in our culture today. In other words, people that believe that, you know, if, if they're zapped by Jesus Christ and their life has changed and they turn and put their faith in Jesus, now they, if they really believe in Jesus, then their life will have no more suffering. Uh, there'll be no more problems in life. Uh, he's going to fill my life overflowing with riches and blessings because that's what it means to trust in Jesus. Well, if that's true, then what did Paul do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. His faith must have been very weak. And it's interesting you bring that up because in Second Corinthians 11, we have this section uh, of Scripture where Paul commends himself as an apostle, but not on the basis of his health and his wealth, but precisely on the basis <laughs> of his hardship and his sufferings. He says in Second Corinthians uh chapter 11, he, for example, he says, uh, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, lest one. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. And night and day I've said, been a set adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren and toil and hardship. I guess he had never heard of the health and wealth gospel for some reason. No. <laughs> but in other words, but you see what Paul is saying. He's saying, like he says at the end of, of Galatians, that beautiful statement. How do you know that I'm a true disciple of Jesus Christ? I have the stigmata. I have the, I have the, the nail prints in my hands. And maybe we today, maybe we don't have the nail prints literally in our physical bodies, but we have the nail prints of suffering in our lives whether it's psychological or social or familiar or whatever it is, these things are not curses from God. These are his ways of making us holier and bringing us closer to God. What was it, Ken, that uh, made the early church grow? What, what is well, it that made it expand? And you're an interpreter and a translator of the early church fathers, but what is one of the main things in the early church that caused it to yeah. grow? Well, that certainly was the persecution. You know, Saint, uh, well, we don't call him the Saint, but Tertullian, the second surgery uh, father from, from Carthage, said that the, this, the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah. And so the church thrived on the fact that it was following Jesus Christ faithfully. And this is the essence of what it means to be a true Christian. We have our sights set higher on, on a kingdom beyond us, not in this world. Now, you know, as Christians, we fail all the time. 
But the point is that our, we always come back to the goal. And what is that goal? It is to be crucified with Christ. It is to be risen with him. And it is to live in his presence ultimately in heaven. That's what fired the imaginations of the early Christians. That's what gave them the fortitude to stand up against emperors like uh, Diocletian and Decius and Gallius and all these different emperors that had persecutions going on during the first three centuries. It was because they were fired with that gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Ken, it's interesting in what way that this passage points out the flaws behind the theology of the Protestant work ethic. Um, in other words, if I remember correctly, you know, leading from Calvin, there's this idea of every one of us, well, not every one of us, but those who are of the elect, the, who, those whom God has chosen, have been chosen for a purpose. And our life is to discern that purpose. What is the one thing God has called us to do? And when we discover that, how will we know if we've guessed correctly and we're doing that which God has called us to do? And the example is that our life will be blessed. Our life will show proof that what we're doing is good. And so when life goes well, we think, I must be on, in the path that God calls me or if I'm successful. You know, one of the richest men in America who ever lived in America happened to be a very devout Baptist, and he believed the reason he went into the oil industry is because he believed God called him to that, and because he came wealthy and wealthy, wealthy, he interpreted that, well, then I must be doing exactly what God wants me to do. Well, the, and Max Weber wrote quite a bit about that in his books about the yes. Protestant work ethic. Well, I mean, if that was true, then given what you just read by Paul, why wasn't he saying, oh, shoot, I must have chosen the wrong career. You know, maybe I was supposed to be persecuting the church all along. Look at all this stuff that's happened to me. I can't be in the will of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's clear to me anyway that um, that from the very beginning, God revealed to Paul. You know, there's the, if we go to that back to that classic passage, Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's conversion. You remember Ananias was told by God to go and to baptize Paul and to give and restore his sight because Paul had become blind for three days. And in the story, it says very clearly, the Lord said to, to Ananias, go for he, Paul, is my chosen instrument a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Now, what greater privilege could any child of God have than to be the chosen instrument to bring the name of Christ to people that have never heard it? But then notice the next statement in verse 16. This is chapter 9, verse 16. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was called to be the apostle of the Gentiles, but that did not mean he wouldn't suffer. In fact, he was going to suffer a lot in the fulfillment of his duties. Now, suffering is something that we, we can't predict. God brings it and he brings it into our lives. He takes it out of our lives. But someone that was called to the heights of calling that Paul was, well, he was going to have to suffer a lot because he would be called to a greater ministry. And oftentimes those who are called to greater ministries uh, have to endure much suffering in the midst of it. And Ken, this is 
One of the main reasons we do this program, folks, is um, not because Ken and I here think we're the, the biggest experts that ever lived. It's not so much that. It's that by the grace and mercy of God, we recognize we are the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, we, we, we are the most yeah. of sinners ourselves. And, and it's by the mercy for Ken and I, both by grace, discovering the beauty of the church, for this very reason, is that it is so easy to read Scripture find a passage that speaks to us and let that passage run our life and we may misinterpret it. We may misinterpret authentic spirituality and what it really means. And if we're caught up in believing that if I have faith in Jesus, then I'm not going to be sick and I'm going to be wealthy and I'm going to be blessed. And once I discover God's plan for my life, everything's going to go just great. And then when it doesn't go great, then what happens? And what the church has taught through great spiritual writers like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. Mm. And we see it in the life of Job in the Old Testament, is that as we walk with God, as we walk in love with our Lord, trusting in him as a father to a son, that he wants us to mature because the end goal of our life is what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, when he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And it may be that as we get older, it's not that God becomes clearer to us, but foggier. Because he wants us to draw closer to him and to trust in him, and he can pull back, and the sufferings and the fasting and all of that is to strengthen us so that as we get older in life, we depend more on our faith in him and not on the things that we have grasped. Well, I think that's absolutely on, on hit the nail on the head because that's what many of the great saints have said, that as they've gotten toward the end of their life, it seems as if God becomes more obscure to them. And why? Well, in a sense, because God can trust them more, because they're not going to turn away because he hasn't showering blessings and interior consolations. You mentioned that, that verse about confidence before him. It reminds me of the words of Paul himself in Second Timothy chapter 4. This is the last letter that he wrote before he died. And, and what he said was, the time for my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So there's this crown waiting for us in heaven. But the, but our only real focus should be I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept my faith. In other words, there's that old Catholic saying, but boy, is it true that the only real tragedy in life is not to be a saint. The only real failure is not to seek holiness. And so the the material things we have, whether we have them or we don't have them, or the recognition, the fame, or whatever it is, is really insignificant compared to whether we've latched hold of and clinging to 
uh, Jesus Christ with all we are. And you hear this reverberating through Paul's words. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Yeah, that Boy, phrase, that's, a, I, that's a man confidence. I've kept the faith. I've kept yeah. the faith. And again, John says that in quoting Jesus, abiding in him, remaining in yeah. him, continuing yeah. in him. In fact, it reminds me again of, of Paul and I mean of John and in Revelations 2 when he talks to all seven churches and every single thing, you know, all seven churches uh, which were faithful at one time but then went through different struggles in their uh, witness. But he says the same thing to everyone and that is to him who conquers. To him who yeah. conquers. In, uh, yeah. To the church at Ephesus. He says, to him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To him who conquers. The, the, the implication of the phrase, to him who conquers, is that it's going to be a battle. That our walk with yeah. Christ from now until the end is not going to be continuously easier as we're faithful. Mm -hmm. And then we, as we end towards the end of life, it's just going to be cruising on an escalator. No, it may be, in fact, that he humbles us because if we haven't humbled ourselves, I mean, the most, maybe one of the most important things Jesus ever said uh, to those who, uh, you know, humble, uh, what's that, how's it go, Ken? They, they will be humbled if we aren't humble. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, yeah, those who consider themselves first will be last. Um, there's also that beautiful statement in in First Peter, where Peter gives the advice: humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time. You know, Marcus, this pointing us to those seven letters in Revelation. We probably ought to do a, some programs on those. Yep, sometimes yep. beautiful, but you're absolutely right. There's a pattern here, and to each one of them, he says. To the one who conquers, I will give the, the stone with only his name only. Only he knows that name. Or I will give him to eat of the tree of life. Or he will not experience the second death. And But if you look at each letter, you'll see that what they have to conquer is different in different churches. So some in cases it's heresy. In other cases it's immorality. So the conquering is to, again, pursue sainthood in the midst of a very wicked world sometimes. And sometimes I feel like our world is very much like those those pagan worlds of uh, that these letters were written to. Paul knew that. As a Jew, he lived in the midst of a pagan Gentile world. He saw a lot of really bad stuff. But in the midst of it, he kept the faith. He held on both the faith that his faith in Christ and the objective faith that Christ had given to him and that he learned in the scriptures and in, in the, from the apostles. So this is a, a, a tremendous, Paul's a tremendous example of what true sainthood is. In verse uh, 10, clean. Ken, talk about in verse 10, Paul's witness to grace and what grace did in his life how it continued to empower him, and and what difference that sh his model should make in our life about grace. In fact, there's one thing there. His grace toward me was not in vain. His yeah, grace toward yeah. me was not in vain. Yeah. Well, you know, he, I think if you follow this this text, this verse three, you see beautifully the the sequence and the progression. He became a 
child of God, a servant of Jesus Christ because of the grace of God. The grace broke into his life through the vision that he saw of Jesus in heaven, but also just the grace that he received in his baptism, becoming a Christian. And you know that must have been hugely radical because he was not only a Jew and a Pharisee, but he was a persecutor of the Christians because he thought he was serving God. So, and you remember he says in Galatians, you know, all they knew of me was that the one who was formerly persecuting the church now was preaching the same gospel that the church was preaching. But he says that this grace was did not prove to be in vain. And that's a call for every one of us, like Paul, to say, I'm going to get up this morning and the grace of God is not going to be in vain. I'm going to live by the grace of God. And that's why he, he goes on to say, but rather I labored. I, in fact, I labored more than all of the other apostles, right? And he said, and then, but he kind of corrects himself. He says, oh, wait a minute. It wasn't really me laboring. It was the grace of God laboring in me. No matter how holy we become, we realize it's still God's grace poured into our lives that makes us this way. You know, John Paul II talked about this several times, and it was actually enshrined in the Catechism. If you look in the Catechism, when it talks about prayer, it says that prayer is something we begin doing, but ultimately is a gift from God. In other words, the inner transformation that takes place in a person's life and brings them to sainthood or to holiness is not really, it's out of proportion to our actions. We have to respond to the grace, but the grace that's given to us is so much more beyond. It's incommensurable with our actions because God is so good and so gracious to us. And you see that, I think, in this verse that you've pointed to us too, verse 10, when he says, I labored, but it really was the grace of God laboring in me. It was God accomplishing his work through me. Well, Ken, probably the thing that we can take away from this is if anyone's listening, and it might be just you and me talking, Ken, we don't know, but if anybody's listening, if, if, if they want to get close to Jesus Christ, if they want to be faithful, if they want to be holy, they want to be a saint, if they want... The, the fact that they want to is grace. Right. And so it begins by being grateful to what God has done in our lives and then saying, dear Lord, by your grace, may your grace not be in vain in my life, but help me yeah. to serve you with all you've given me. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for joining us. All of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Again, go to deepinscripture.com or send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what scriptures you'd like us to talk about. And we'd love to know whether this program is an encouragement to you. God bless you. We'll see you next week.